Hi everyone, I'm Lisa Davis, Senior Vice President and Chief Information Officer at Blue Shield of California, and your host for this episode of Healthy Dose of Dialogue podcast. Today, we are diving into health tech and where we see opportunity for digital innovation to impact the healthcare industry in 2022. And what better way to do that than by inviting two well-regarded industry experts to join me for this conversation and share their thoughts. I'd like to first welcome Scott Becker, the founder and publisher of Becker's Hospital Review and Becker's Healthcare, publications that equip healthcare leaders with information about the most critical issues in American healthcare. Scott is normally asking the questions in his podcast, the Scott Becker Private Equity and Business Podcast. Scott is also a partner in the healthcare department, McGuire Woods, which provides legal and public affairs solutions. I'm also pleased to welcome Ray Wong, who is the founder, chairman, and principal analyst of Constellation Research, a Silicon Valley-based research and advisory firm that studies disruptive business and exponential technology trends. A veteran technology industry analyst and author, Ray co-hosts Disrupt TV, a weekly enterprise tech and leadership webcast, and authors a business strategy and technology blog. Thank you, Scott and Ray, for joining me today. Welcome. Thanks, Lisa, for having us. Yes, thank you so much. Thrilled to be here. The pandemic, as we all know by necessity, has been a forcing function for transformation in the way our healthcare system operates. At the same time that we try to get our hands around the science of health, there is hope that today's technology will lower costs, bring about a higher quality of care, and increase access to care. Ray, let's start with you. As the healthcare industry adopts technology in ways it never has before, what opportunities do you see for innovation and digitization in the operations of healthcare? You're right. There's going to be a lot of shift that we're seeing. I mean, the rapid consumerization and digitization of healthcare has been accelerated by the pandemic. Analytics, automation, and AI all play a bigger role. Digital twins and the metaverse are going to change how we experience care, how doctors train, how we engage across the ecosystem. And what you see in telemedicine today will be transformed as the metaverse is built out. The data to build out recommendations for population health will enable ambient experiences. These are experiences that happen in the background. Physicians will be able to actually see patients and talk and not spend all their time entering data into EMRs and wasting the most valuable piece of time, which is the patient uh, relationship. And we're also going to see different ways when we look at care and we look at caregiving by using data and analytics to drive that. But we're seeing a revolution in healthcare, and it's huge um, from devices all the way to software, all the way to how doctors are looking at care, to even the way we train physicians and caregivers along the way, and more importantly, in how we pay for things, how efficient we are uh, with our healthcare dollars. Yeah, Ray, I I couldn't agree more and super excited about things that are coming our way and they're moving very quickly. And I know for many of our listeners on the podcast, it probably can't come soon enough because we all crave that retail-like experience, a digital experience that we have in other sectors that we also want to see in healthcare. Scott, let me turn to you. There are so many friction points in healthcare that technology can play a role in solving. How should healthcare organizations prioritize when they innovate and digitize? 
we look at five or six different thoughts or categorizations around this, one of the first thoughts you have is what's needed? What do you actually have to do from a digital, a commercial perspective, a taking care of patients, providers perspective? So what's needed versus what's nice? The distinction of just absolutely what do you have to do? Second is what can you adapt that has a high probability of success? Many, many systems that we work with are almost never going to be alpha or beta users. They're only going to be second adopters. So they're going to adopt something that they know somebody else has used and they've had success with it. So what are you going to adopt? Where are you going to put your resources, your time, your efforts into? And, and where do you have high probability of it going well when you adopt it and implement it? A third concept is you, you have to prioritize. And part of the prioritization is where are you going to get decent-sized benefits? There are many systems are running so many different applications, and every time you add a new app, a new anything, it causes some stress in the organization. So where are you going to circle your efforts, put more efforts behind, and get decent-sized benefits? Then the next question was, where do they want to focus their digitization and their efforts? Is it around patients? Is it around their providers and team? Is it around administrative back office? And finally, there's a second choice on top of all of this. Some magnificent systems say, we're doing this just for our private providers, our patients, and our administrative back office functions. We'll talk about some of that as we go on. Others say we're gonna do that, but we're also gonna get commercialization and profitability and what we could do with those things. And, and neither is right or wrong, but clarity about what you're trying to do is so, so important. The other two thoughts are, everything you add on takes resources. It takes more than money. It takes people and time. So where do you have resources to put into these categories? And that's why it's so important to make good governance choices about where you're going to go after what you're going to try and do, uh, because everything you do takes time and resources. And then we look at a, a last concept, the sixth concept is constantly things that will help or not help to retain, recruit, and automate. So you're constantly looking throughout your organization how we retain and recruit great people, and where can I automate things? Where are there good benefits to automation that will make my staffing in the long run a little bit easier? So those are at least five or six thoughts we look at when we talk about trying to make decisions and prioritizing. Scott, that was really helpful because I think you laid out a really practical framework at which we should be thinking about those things. And you're absolutely right. Everything we do, no matter whether it's table stakes or driving innovation, takes resources. One of the things we talk a lot about at Blue Shield of California is having to have this ruthless prioritization of really understanding what is going to move the needle and what really do we need to do in terms of table stakes. So all excellent points. You know, both of you talked about broadly driving innovation and digitization. And one of the things I think all of us find ourselves in is finding the right talent and certainly the right skill sets that allows us to drive the innovation and digitization. Ray, what are your thoughts of this shortage of talent yeah, we have a tough time finding talent. And, and what we're seeing across the country is really uh, the, the impact, right? COVID allowed physicians to cut across state lines uh, with temporary uh, licensing. Um, you saw that happen with nursing. You saw that happen with other specialties, but that's temporary solutions. We need something much more than that. And when we think about talent development and skills development going forward, uh, you know, we, we've also seen a re reduction in the number of medical schools, the number of you know nursing schools, the number of folks that joining the front lines. So, so I think there's going to have to be a makeover in terms of what 
this is, and it's more than the great resignation, it's what we call a great refactoring. This great refactoring is really the balance between people's individual work-life balance, uh, organization's mission and purpose and where they want to go, and what the patients are looking for in that delivery of care. Telemedicine has played a good role uh, in helping in terms of alleviating that stress. Uh, we've seen lots of folks adopt telemedicine. Um, you've got large facilities and you know, basically where the first visit is now telemedicine, and, and by choice, maybe you go in for care, and that's actually helped with access and equity in terms of getting to patient care. You know, There's going to be a lot more investment that has to be made to actually give people the skills to actually train individuals and, and to rebuild that pipeline of healthcare workers, especially given the aging population that we have going forward and also the lack of immigration for scarce skill sets. Great, great point, Ray. And I love that refactoring perspective versus the resignation or leaving the workplace of how we should be thinking about it differently in terms of preparing the workforce for the future. Hey, Scott, what would you add to this topic? We've got an aging population, 330 million people. You know, you have to realize that after you get through the couple of countries of a billion people, we're the third largest in the world, and taking care of all the healthcare needs is a, is a huge, huge challenge. We do fairly well with it, but need a lot of work to get better at it. But what Ray mentioned on immigration can't be understated. Over the course of time, we have solved so many of our problems of bringing in magnificent immigrants, and we've sort of slowed down on that were largely not great reasons in terms of immigration to solve a lot of uh, very sophisticated talent problems, both at the nursing level, the IT level, all kinds of levels. That is one big issue that Ray pointed out that's not talked about enough. The other thing that's not talked about when we talk about shortages of people, staffing solutions, minting more doctors, more nurses, more everything, there, there's so much talk in DC about what I think it was very political polarizing issues. Uh, Medicare for all on one hand, even though Medicare is only 14% of the population. On the other hand is, you know, all of healthcare should be a free market. And we know the reality is 50% plus of healthcare is already paid through the government. So it's neither is really right, but, but really try to solve problems. More residency spots, more, more ability to open and train nurses, all kinds of allied health professionals and so forth. Those are issues that aren't as sexy or as exciting in DC, but they're practical issues where there should be an ability to reach agreement on both sides of the aisle, but, but they, they get lost in, in just the constant politicking and so forth. Certainly we know from a, a female and other minority populations that we've always struggled to attract them into technology, but there are certainly engineering, computer science, data and data and analytics and all of these new innovative skill sets, cloud engineering, you name it, that we're having trouble finding talent. You know, I, I kind of go back to high school versus university. These partnerships were created. I remember, you know, when I was at Intel just a few years ago, what we had 1.6 million more jobs than we had people to fill them. That was five years ago and we're not tracking any better. So somehow between all of us and our partners, we're gonna to need to figure out how we really kind of break through and figure out how to fill this pipeline more fully than we are today. Uh, mm -hmm. Scott, you wanna add something mm -hmm. on that? The only thing I add to that is there are possible solutions that are out there. For example, India starts people in medical school out of high school. There's there's ways to do this. Residency programs are way longer than they have to be. I mean, there, there are ways to solve this that are not that impossible. And, and yes, we were understaffed in technology 10 years ago. There was zero unemployment there 10 years ago. Now it's a million times worse, 100%. 
You mentioned 1.6 million person number. You know, the current number in the U.S. jobs on Phil is 10.4 million or so. So it's gotten worse. But there are ways to solve a lot of these issues. The people that are trying to run nursing programs, they have a short gap of faculty, but they are they are on trying to figure out how do we get more nurses in our country. And on the doctor side, there's a guild problem that we've got to solve. I mean, there's, there's we need specialists, we need primary care doctors, but there are ways to solve it. They're just very politically you know, challenging to the to the residency situation and to lots of different issues out there. Ray, I'm going to come back to you. What opportunities does the healthcare industry have to partner with companies outside of healthcare to drive greater automation and better leverage analytics? And what are you hearing from tech companies and how they're envisioning their role in healthcare? And we know this is a big explosive topic as well. So let's start here. Yeah, this is a challenging topic, mostly because we have more of a antitrust, anti-competition government in place. And at this moment, how tech companies create partnerships and how carefully they enter uh, with the use of patient data, with the use of extensions is going to be important. But the challenge is this, the tech companies have not only the technology, they have the capital and the talent. And, and that's why it's so important. That's why they're all focused on trying to figure out how to make healthcare that next opportunity. And I can say almost every big tech company is thinking about it. I mean, there's there's some role about health. Uh, health is something that is, one would say, human right. It's one that is encompassing of everybody's life. It's fundamental to the pursuit of happiness. And so whether you're big tech, whether you're a consulting firm, you want to jump into it. But the challenge here is we haven't put in the guardrails for any of these companies to come in and actually play that role. Data has to be a property right. And what I mean by that is uh, you have land titles for your home and registrations for your car. You have patents and trademarks for your intellectual property. But today, our personal data, our genomics, our privacy, our digital exhaust, that information is not considered a property, right? If we would just do that, then what would happen is companies would actually have to have a value exchange for consent. I'd have to pay you to use your data or I'd have to use that information and take clinical trials, right? People piece together all that information to get prospective data. And that's probably about seven to $800 per record. Why don't we just pay people that? Here, I'll, I'll enroll in this trial on diabetes management. I'll enroll in this trial uh, you know, for an arrhythmia issue and boom, right? Uh, pretty soon you're getting paid to do these trials. And you know what? It's not very discriminatory. Disease doesn't discriminate against you know, individuals. I am a free market capitalist and I'm not ashamed to admit it, but what you're actually gonna create is the beginning of universal basic income, right? Where you actually can provide that data, that data gets pulled and you actually get paid for it uh, and for that information and insight. And it's a win-win for tech for good. And so we can actually see that going forward. And then large tech companies can say, hey, we can take big amounts of data, monitor for patterns. Uh, we can identify new treatment patterns and prospective studies. Uh, we can can enroll people into clinical trials and do real-time monitoring as well. Um, and, and that's where the excitement is. Yeah, agreed. Scott, what would you add on the role of big tech in healthcare, leveraging the technology and scale of, you know, whether it's a Google and Microsoft and Amazon and others? What I have found in healthcare is so many of the better solutions are coming not just from those kinds of companies, but from many of the companies that are technology companies coming out of Silicon Valley, coming out of other places that are really focused on the domain specifically of healthcare. You know, and, and again, to, to raise point, he hits it very well, is these companies to be successful, they have to be able to accumulate enough coders, enough software engineers, enough of a group to have value. There's still a ton of these 
next level companies, not the Microsofts, the Googles. I mean, Google Health, and there's all these things were intended to take over healthcare that haven't done so. It's not that they're making great inroads, but you have so much greatness coming out of, and, and the problem is being a single solution because people don't want single solutions. They want Epic or Cerner, but there's this balance between of all these companies that are growing up that are magnificent, that have accumulated enough software engineering, enough group, and are really focused on a handful of in healthcare. They really are experts in it, and they add great value to the ecosystem. So they get some mix of the big, big companies, and then there's a whole level of next level and smaller companies that have just huge impact. And they may end up being consolidated, like Microsoft who have bought Nuance. There may yeah. be more and more of that. But, but I do think there's changes being bought by Optum, and that's not a small company either, but there are a ton of next level companies that I think are much better at specific solutions for healthcare than are the mega mecha companies. And to, to raise point, the mega companies do have so much power and there is antitrust issues, but they have so much power and so much control that they can play anything they want to. But I do think it's that next level Silicon Valley company to use a, a phrase that, that's much more effective at solving so many issues in healthcare. Yeah, and we do have plenty of choices. I think there's more healthcare startups than any other sector currently in terms of what's happening in the market today. And frankly, for many of our listeners on the call, how do you sort through just a plethora of opportunities and new innovation in terms of who you partner with? Any thoughts on that, Ray, of how to work through that? Yeah, we typically look at a couple of dimensions. I, I think the first one is really the integrity and ethics of that organization, um, you know, knowing that the data is going to be used properly, that it's going to be secure, it's going to be safe. The second aspect is trying to understand where the synergies between those technologies are. There's so many places to fix things, right? I mean, you have opportunities to automate certain types of processes, and that will create certain sets of efficiencies. Uh, there are innovations in terms of you know choosing the right population healthcare dynamics and the right populations and providing the right treatment for those uh, populations. But that requires cultural context, that requires understanding of what accessibility and you know, equity requirements are to, to actually deliver on that. Um, and so, so I think it's bringing those knowledge together. There's a type of partners you're looking for. Um, you, know, you might serve specific needs and specific populations in a way very differently. Uh, it could require anything from just language capabilities to you know, um, maybe the use of low-touch technologies or less technologies. Some populations may require more technology and, and you know, may require you know, more connectivity. And so, so I think it's just having that nuance and that context. That's what partners should be looking for. And when you partner, you really have to be very specific about how you want to partner with those organizations. More importantly, I mean, as we always say in strategy, it's not about what you will do. It's what you won't do that defines strategy and it helps you find the right partner. Yeah, perfect, Ray. I know one of the first things that we did um, as an organization is to really align to your point around those strategic goals and vision uh, and to make sure that those were aligned as to where we were going and how we wanted to get there and how we would execute together before we actually started talking into any of the specifics of what the opportunity may be. So great points. Thank you for sharing those. Let's go on. Scott, I'm coming back to you. Let's talk about health at home and how technology can enable the shift to more of an asset light integrated model. Where do you think we are with this today? And what needs to be done to accelerate and get us where we should be? Because we're certainly seeing from our stakeholders and our customers, telehealth is a perfect example, 
of how that skyrocketed during the pandemic in terms of use and meeting expectations of our customers. So Scott, turning it over to you. One of the most fascinating discussions we had this past year was one of the chief strategy officer, one of the leaders at Adventist Hospital, Adventist Hospital in California. And Adventist has 24 hospitals and how they describe it is their at-home program has either already become, which they consider their 25th hospital, is already their biggest hospital or, or right about getting there. And this gives you some sense of it. And a lot of these things happen, like like everything, like tele, teleradiology, telehealth, and I say teleradiology because that was one of the very, very first areas. Some of these things happen by necessity not and then by design. In a pandemic, you can't build hospitals fast enough, so you better figure out how to serve patients at home that otherwise would be in the hospital. I know in New York, for example, they you just literally, there's not enough nursing home beds to release hot patients to. So you got to figure out a way to serve patients at a different sort of mortality. Yes, there is this movement towards it. It's not quite there yet, but it's getting there in different places in terms of hospitals at home being the largest hospital for a lot of different systems. Second is you have to have in, insanely great technology to use, insanely easy technology and great technology to use. You have to really feel like you're in the patient's room or in, in the room without totally invading their privacy, but really feeling like you're there like in a hospital. There's this question of, do you need at-home family support or in-home support? And, and, and many people would say, to work this well, you still have cultural challenges, family challenges, other challenges. Someone who's all alone might be very nervous in a hospital home setting all alone, or they've got enough family support and others, it might be easier. And, and there's, there's income issues, socioeconomic issues, all kinds of issues that go with this that are very challenging and they're very real in terms of whether a person at home, an elderly person at home, can really have hospital at home at the right level. And the hospital systems will say yes, but I think the truth on it's somewhere in between, depending on what they're trying to care for, what they're trying to do. The next thing is, you still need staff to back this up. This is not, you leave the person at home, you wire them through something, and you never see them. The real hospital home programs are still sending people out there a couple times a day to really check on the person to make sure they're okay. And, and so, it, it doesn't, it solves bricks and mortar issues. I'm not so sure it yet solves staffing issues. Staffing issues, all of us know, staffing was always cheaper and easier if you get a bunch, a lot of people over one location. Now you're back to sending people out all over the place. And, and, and the jury is still out on whether this is really going to be less expensive and easier to do on a staffing perspective than not. And, and so that these are big issues that are coming out of the pike that haven't been solved but people are getting there. People want asset light models. They want staffing light models. Staffing is still challenging. It's going to be different. Uh, I'm not sure it'll be lighter, but it'll be different if we do this right. It makes me think about having to be agile in terms of meeting the needs of different patients. And Ray, turning it over to you, do you see a clear path for organizations that are looking to integrate these different digital tools to ultimately make this a reality? They definitely do. And, and I love Scott's point really about these asset light models uh, that are out there. And, and I think what's important is if we take technologies such as, you know, the metaverse, which is really augmented reality, virtual reality, telemedicine, digital twins, right? And we tie that back to, you know, how we handle memory care or aging in place or home health, right? It leads us to a whole bunch of things, right? Virtual care um, end to end is, is kind of interesting, but there's some things you just can't do. And so when, when you get into procedures or other than consults, you might actually take the load off 
off and kind of improve uh, the ability to kind of you know reach get patients ready for actual uh, the uh, the physical care aspect right micro hospitals are another area where it's actually create some things where you can actually create you know centers of excellence and really concentrations of specific types of care for specific neighborhoods some neighborhoods actually have a greater obesity and diabetes problem maybe we can actually put those there so that you know you can combine those capabilities along with the technologies there and of course you know where we actually place things like retail clinics is going to be important and so this is where I actually think personalized medicine is going to get better over time and that's really what these digital tools are going to do to be allow you to provide the right care at the right cost structure for the right population and I think we'll see more and more of that. Uh, the beauty is the the infrastructure is getting better. 5G technologies, access to the internet, right? Being able to do everything on a mobile device. I mean, that's really changed things. And that changes like who can take care, what time care can be delivered. And more importantly, you know, how we address certain types of populations. You know, we've seen a lot more, if you look at the stats, more mental health visits through telemedicine than we have through in-person visits. That's helped. That's saved a lot of lives. That's actually created a lot of opportunities for intervention of care a lot earlier and actually making sure people get the meds at the right time and you know, aren't late on prescriptions. And so simple things like that do help. And we're also seeing how the cost of care is improving. And I think that's going to be a big area. Agreed. Right. Let's go on and talk about this consumer electronic show. I know that you attended that at the beginning of the year. What health tech did you see or engage with that you think holds promise? And what trends are you seeing in terms of this venture capital investment in health tech? So uh, just smiling because, you know, when you registered the tchotchke was an avid Binax self-test kit, right? I mean, it's the most interesting tchotchke ever at a conference, but it's very, very appropriate, right? You're going to Las Vegas and you're seeing that. And, and the CS innovations have been interesting. We had anything from remote patient diagnostics that have gotten better. So sensor enhanced wearables, tracking biometrics, so anything from blood glucose levels to oxygen to ketones, lactate, I mean, even alcohol. So that was pretty cool. We saw smart toilet. You want a real data? data dump, that's a real data dump. And we definitely could figure out what was going on, how you're doing, you could track and monitor things. Uh, Metaverse and VR, we saw digital therapeutics for mental wellness, PTSD, things that can do to help people like, you know, drive down there at levels of anxiety and even train them on things. And of course, telehealth from teledentistry, virtual care, remote monitoring. I mean, those were all big areas in the pandemic uh, and will continue to be going forward. Um, and so, so the investment is there. The investments, I mean, there's a lot of excitement. Question really is what will reimbursement look like? What will CMS pay for? Uh, what will insurance companies pay for? And, you know, what's cost effective? What's not cost effective? What are the alternatives? I think those are the questions that, investors are asking. Uh, that's the questions that, you know, care providers are wondering, hey, what's going to be better here? Uh, and more importantly, it it's really comes down to what value, what value do patients get? So, so we're definitely seeing this here. Some things are a little bit crazy, a little bit outlandish, but you know what? They might become reality very quickly. And that's what CES does uh, in terms of bringing technology to the hands of individuals. I love it. Let's talk about the metaverse. And I know both of you have been mentioning uh, <laughs> during the podcast today, this concept of the metaverse. And the idea behind this concept is that there could be an entirely new approach to virtual human interaction and connection overall that goes beyond specific technologies themselves. While we may still be a decade or more away, I think we're a little bit closer, certainly on certain technologies, the healthcare industry is already using many of the components that will ultimately comprise metaverse interactions. So I'm going to ask each of you to give us your perspective on this concept and how it could affect the delivery of healthcare. Scott, let's start with you. 
on the metaverse. The best I can think is, is what you said, I think, is exactly right. I think if it is telehealth, virtual health, digital health on steroids, a million times better than it is today. I mean, you still know if you're doing a virtual visit, telehealth visit, messaging visit with your physician, you still don't have quite the same connectivity you do when you're sitting in the room and you could open up and discuss a few more issues, a few more problems, a few more things you're concerned about. You just don't have quite that dialogue. And it's gotten, even in the last two years, we all know all these video platforms, we're doing this discussion, this podcast virtually, and it's gotten up a billion times easier just in the last two years. I view it as the metaverse. The first thing I think in healthcare, and I'm sure Ray probably has much deeper thoughts on it, is a far more enhanced patient visit, a far more connected relationship you really feel like you're almost in the office of somebody without having to be. So all the convenience of telehealth was a lot closer to being a real in-person visit, but done sort of virtually of some sort. That's how I sort of think of it as the next level of adoption. And that's obviously different than all the other discussions about AI and everything else. Thanks, Scott. Ray, how about you? Yeah, so we've been looking at the components of the metaverse kind of take stage. I mean, we started out with the age of the internet and that was great pieces together and people access things and connect it. We got to the age of digital giants, which is really you know what we see today in the commerce and, and we're entering the age of the metaverse. And what that means is we're going from the 2D experience to the 3D experience. That's the simplest way of thinking about that. And what Scott was saying, your telehealth visit suddenly has, you know, you're wearing like an exoskeleton and haptic gloves and suddenly you feel things, right? It's kind of interesting. That changes the way you might train physicians. Uh, see an operating theater live from 15 different operating theaters. And that's going to be very interesting. So you're going to change the way we learn, change the way we teach, change the way we share information. There's also the social aspects of the metaverse, which allows people, patients who are lonely to connect with other folks and see each other. And that will change the way we look at how therapies are delivered. It'll change the way how we actually train, onboard, recruit. We're going to recruit differently. We're looking for nurses with different skills. We're looking for PAs and MAs with different skills, and we're going to see that across the way. And so meetings are going to change, recruiting's changing, and the digital twins are going to change how we learn techs are going to learn how to operate equipment. We have a centralized place to kind of teach that for everybody else. The equipment might not be easy to ship out all over the place, but when you get there, you've already had some experience. So, so that's just some aspects of what's happening here. And then of course, you know, how we treat care, how we actually have health education and events, uh, how we actually improve our ability to actually transform act on and actually put in smart contracts, which would then be the equivalent to care delivery protocols and directives. Like for this person, this is the care that's required. This is the protocols. Here's what they're willing to pay. Here's out of pocket or what's in pocket. All oh, this is covered by this insurance. All that goes away. I mean, that interaction, you already know what's happening and it's the ability to actually make that happen. Now, we are really early here. There are different parts of the metaverse. We have to think about it as what are the interfaces? Right now, they're goggles. They're big. They're clunky, right? It's going to be glasses in the future. It might even be in your context. You might even need any of that equipment. You get into a room and it's all touch like the minority report. And then there are the worlds. There will be different types of healthcare worlds that occur, just like we have gaming worlds and sporting worlds and training worlds. And then, of course, you know, you'll be members of things like Blue Shield might be a DAO, decentralized autonomous organization, which has their rules. And here are the membership requirements. And here's how you fund and you pay. And that'll be a brand new joint venture startup with Blue Shield and favorite tech company. So you're going to create these kind of things and incentives. And that was, that's where blockchain and crypto tech comes in place. And then there's the Web 3.0 infrastructure. And that's how we actually allow for data portability. That's how we actually share information. That's the security layer. That's the decentralized access. I feel like I'm now going to be living in some big game, Ray, uh, uh, or I'm in the middle of the matrix. I'm not sure, but certainly your passion around it and the endless possibilities of where this can go. It's an exciting 
exciting topic for us to continue to talk on. So thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. I'm going to move into a quick lightning round of questions. Oh, no. <laughs> change it up a little bit, so I hope you're both ready. First question, and I'm going to start with you, Scott. What is the best leadership advice you've ever received? The best leadership I ever advised, received was two different pieces, and they came very specifically. One was I was a young, young leader, and I had yelled at somebody, and another person had the wherewithal to say, yelling is almost always bad, because you might get your point across for that person, but it screws up the culture for the long run for everybody else. So that was one piece of leadership advice. And it was, I took it to heart. I almost never yelled since then, not perfect, but it was, I was in my late twenties and it was a, it was a great piece of advice in terms of the uselessness of getting mad and yelling at somebody and how short-term any benefits were. The, the second piece of advice I got was from a brilliant, actually a healthcare lawyer out in California named Jerry Peters, uh, famous, famous lawyer in our field back in the day. And he had given me the advice is you can't do anything significant without building great teams. So those were the two great concepts that okay. yelling is basically bad and build great teams. Well, thank you for giving me two. Ray, best leadership advice. You know, I can listen to Scott all day. It's amazing. This is, this is amazing <laughs> when you think about what's going on. Um, you know, the best one was just listen, right? Be a good listener. Like we, we tend to talk over people today and, and having that sense of listening and empathy for what people are saying uh, really helps. Uh, those types of perspectives are, are, are really important. And, and I think the second piece is be humble. Right. I mean, you never know who you're around. I mean, and especially out where we are here, like you could be standing next to a billionaire, not know it. You could be standing next to someone who won a Nobel Prize. I mean, it's crazy. Just these folks are all around you and, and be humble, be humble. There's no no point bragging about things for, for no reason. Um, and, and it helps really set the table to allow people to have the conversations they need to have. OK, you guys are overachievers. We already knew that. My last question for you, Ray, is what is the one thing you do to stay mentally fit? Oh, I actually, um, I, I listen to music. I spin music. Uh, I actually uh, am a vinyl DJ. And so it's one of the fun things that I do for fun. And so like when I'm really stressed, um, you know, I guess I'll turn over here. I mean, I, I get over here and just, uh, you know, have some fun. You know, there's two turntables and some records and, you know, have a lot of fun. Love it. We, so now, now you owe me a mixtape. Okay, Scott, how about you? It's a constant. When you're younger, people say, you know, health is everything, health is the new wealth, all those kinds of things. And you sort of take it for granted as you get older, you understand that that is the most true statement there is, that health is everything. So it's a constant mix of exercise, sports, other kinds of things to stay connected to family, to people, and so forth. It's an all-encompassing effort. This, I don't have one life hack. It's a constant focus on activity, mental and physical health. It's just a constant effort. I mean, I just don't think there's a way around it really. And, and for me, at least. Perfect. I couldn't agree more. I want to thank you both for really an engaging, thought-provoking conversation that we've had here today. And I want to thank you for taking the time, all of our listeners, to be with us today. I hope you walked away with ideas about how you can, number one, think about this new concept of this metaverse. What does it mean? Um, how can we continue to learn and innovate and bring about these new types of technologies? How do we think about our talent uh, shortages that we're facing today? And I'd love to raise points on, from a refactoring standpoint versus how we have traditionally looked at 
uh, building our talent and our workforces of the future. So many interesting topics around health tech, and I know there was probably a golden nugget for everyone to take away from today's conversation. So please join us next time as we continue to bring you a healthy dose of insights and perspectives based on conversations with leaders like Ray and Scott today who are transforming healthcare. We'd love to hear your feedback. Please share your comments and let us know your thoughts by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also join the conversation on LinkedIn or Twitter at Dose of Dialogue or visit our website at doseofdialogue.com. Thank you for joining us today.